Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt In the spirit of this season's theme song, Social, generously loaned to us by Squirt Gun, I'm going to move quickly. This series is inspired by the seemingly imminent collapse of a legacy social media platform known as Twitter. So far, the signature event in what some, including some of our guests this season, are characterizing as an epochal moment in global media. Like so many inflated booms in U.S. history, this one, which is now ending, began in California. Mark Twain compared Californians to zombies, men whose dreams, whether realized or crushed, left them like moral husks, resembling humanity, but no longer belonging to it. Fittingly, then, I suppose, that the prevailing worldview of American tech, headquartered a hundred miles from where Twain penned his first viral story, has often been called the Californian ideology. It is a zombie political economy, and one reason why Twitter is, as this episode airs, a platform on autopilot, its employees locked out, it carries hundreds of millions of accounts like an unmanned aircraft towards an undetermined but seemingly inevitable end. And so we begin this series with Sarah T. Roberts, She is Associate Professor of Information Studies and Gender Studies at UCLA and author of the book on content moderation, a process at the center of Twitter's current debacle. It's called Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. Listeners should know that Sarah and I recorded this discussion on Monday, November 14th, knowing that the Twitter story would continue to develop before the episode posted. But I think you'll find the conversation has aged quite well. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash the end of Twitter. As you pointed out in your LA Times editorial last week, though much of what has happened with Twitter since Elon Musk took it over has been impossible to predict, one thing that he telegraphed from the start, in fact, started telegraphing months ago, was that many of the changes, or some of the first and most egregious changes, were going to be to content moderation. 
And you recently published a book in 2019 about commercial content moderation. And so there have been a series of layoffs, including most recently contract workers, perhaps the entire contract worker team at Twitter. What is commercial content moderation? Uh, and maybe past that, how is it going to change the function of a platform like Twitter to have it reduced remarkably, if not entirely eliminated? That's the, as we used to say, the $64,000 question. That seems like a pretty low rent question for how big a deal this could be or this has been, let's say. So I'll start out with the first part of your question, which is what do we mean when we say commercial content moderation? It was up until very recently that I could be in a social setting and somebody would ask me, and I mean other academics would ask me what my work was about, and I would say content moderation and I would get a pretty much a blank stare. So the fact that this is a term of the industry that is really on everyone's lips these days, it's, it's, it's a big change from even the past couple of years. I make this distinction and call it commercial content moderation. You could also say uh, content moderation at scale, content moderation of for-profit social media, commercial platforms, you know, whatever kind of makes a distinction between the present day ecosystem and what has always been a part of the social internet, which is essentially the set of rules by which people interact on a given site or a given platform. These again are, are words that are sort of like specialized insider words that have gained currency in, in everyday speech, which is in itself, especially for language geeks, I mean, that's just weird that we all use those kinds of words now. But, you know, I've been on the social internet for coming up on 30 years. Listeners can't see me, but I'm actually incredibly youthful. Just kidding. I did get online fairly early, but I was a, an adult at the time. And so I'm coming up at, at 30 years. And, and the funny thing was when I got on the early social internet, I really thought I had missed like the peak moment. I was like, oh, if I'd just been on here a few years earlier, this is when it was really cool. But, you know, people were getting together and they were creating these online spaces where they were engaging pleasantly, where they were arguing with each other, you know, the whole gamut of self-expression as we're used to now. And there had to be some kind of rules of engagement. How did people enforce those rules of engagement? Well, there were a whole bunch of different formulations of that tried. But I would argue that any kind of governance that people came up with, self-governance, or maybe they sort of had a autocratic, draconian, charismatic leader in some cases. I mean, I was part of communities that had that too. Or there were sites that were totally anarchic and anything went, but that's a form of governance, right? And so there's always been some sort of rules of engagement. What has changed in the past 30 years? Well, a lot has changed. Um, early on, these were text-based communities. I very famously once remarked to a a friend of mine, uh, when I first saw the World Wide Web in action through the, the early browser mosaic, oh, this will never take off. Everyone knows the internet is a text-based medium. Okay, spoiler alert for the listeners, I never got rich on investments in like, the early <laughs> internet industry because I couldn't get out of my own head, you know, about what the internet was or, or could be. 
But I also think it was because I really was interested in an internet that was non-commercial and introducing graphical elements, introducing corporate identities into those spaces to me really was sort of a bespoiling, honestly. But anyway, as these commercial entities started to become players, it became pretty clear that major corporate entities and brands weren't going to give up control over their brands and identities because suddenly we're online and anything goes. And I mean, early on, they really didn't think this through. So there were some harsh lessons learned by companies early on. Like one example I'll give is like a company puts up a site for its wholesome sandwich cookie brand. And the first comment on the site is kill all the Muslims. As someone I interviewed for my book once said, if you open a hole in the internet, it gets filled with shit. <laughs> We had kind of a first, you know, web 1.0, net 1.0 thing that came and went. Uh, there was a big crash around the year 2000, the early 2000s, um, that saw a lot of companies die. But then what happened was web 2.0, we saw the rise of some of the first attempts at commercialized social media, commercializing human engagements with each other. And so I hearken back to what I was describing as the ecosystem that existed before that commercialization where people were kind of self-selecting and they were making decisions about governance. Well, now money was involved, like big money. As these companies started investing in their own websites, maybe they would have product reviews, maybe they would allow people to upload photos. They buy a tent from REI and they take a picture of themselves using the tent or whatever. Again, if you offer the opportunity to people to upload stuff, they will upload whatever. And a lot of it is unwanted. So very quickly, companies saw a need to have some kind of mechanism to protect against this unwanted material, while at the same time, basically soliciting from the entire world for that material. It's a kind of a paradoxical position. And so this is where an industry was born, right? This is where these practices that used to be ad hoc and sort of like cottage industry of people volunteering their time to enforce rules and to kind of curate an environment became a for pay activity and it became an activity that in fact was mission critical. We then saw the rise of the first social media endeavors, MySpace. Remember MySpace, everybody? You probably had a MySpace page. You'd probably be very embarrassed to see that resuscitated and your horrible music taste in 2002 or whatever. Remember Friendster? That was another early one. Uh, these attempts at monetizing human relationships. New brands were born, in essence, from providing these platforms. So Facebook became a thing, right? It started out as a basically, am I hot or not rating thing against people's will. Is she hot or not, I should say. But it turned in very quickly to something for, for brands and companies. Must have a presence. And again, this issue of opening up the platform to virtually anyone for virtually any purpose was a double-edged sword. They needed that content to come in. They needed that engagement to come in from people to make the platforms viable for their actual customers and clients who were corporations and advertisers. And at the same time, they needed to tell those advertisers, hey, don't worry, we have a way to protect you. This is like, I'm talking 2008, 2009, but here we are in 2022 and we see Elon Musk who is, let's call him the personage of the day. Um, I'll let listeners decide if he's the uh, protagonist or antagonist of the story, but certainly writing to advertisers, assuring them 
that he's going to provide this very brand safety that I'm talking about. So what is commercial content moderation? It is the activity of legions of primarily human beings, but of course with computer aid and automation that is computationally driven. It is you know, a hybrid process in many cases. It is the process of those people making those decisions over and over again about which things are so-called violating. So again, term of the art and which material does not violate rules. What material can stand and what material needs to come down. I, I think a good metaphor would be to think about it in aggregate as a valve or, or as a balance that has to be struck between a company's policies and their tolerance for risk or between a company's user base that it wants to attract versus, let's say, legal interdictions upon certain kinds of behavior that nation states have now put into play. So there's this whole legion of people whose job it is to essentially enforce, enact, affect those policies, whether they're kind of like localized within the company or whether they're at the level of like the EU. And they have to make those decisions over and over again, sometimes thousands of times a day on individual pieces of what we call content. Again, I want to flag that for the listeners as a term that is made up that we've started using over the past few years. Everything is content, apparently. Everything humans do is now content. And these people, their primary function, if, I, if there's one thing I want to stress overall, it's that this practice was born and these people are employed primarily to serve the needs of the platform onto its clientele, which is corporate entities and advertisers. What does that mean about users? Well, as we're seeing very much in real time with the Twitter debacle, it means that users are in fact the product. The things that we generate, the interactions we have, the comments we make, the likes we give, that is the product, our engagement, our captured attention. That is what's being sold. And that is what the companies endeavor to protect, giving the user base the sense that they have freedom of expression to whatever extent it is in the service of the company making a profit. This seems like a workforce that is to some extent, characterized by their inexpensiveness, their gigification, their casualization. And as you lay out in your book, these are low-wage workers whose mental health is to some extent compromised, physical health is to some extent compromised by this work, and yet they do not cost a great deal, at least at the individual level. And so I guess, what does a company gain by attacking that part of their cost structure, which is presumably not where large amounts of money are necessarily being spent? If I am indeed characterizing that correctly, what is the ulterior motive? Yeah. It seems pretty clear to me, and I would guess to most listeners, that advertisers who are the primary clients for a social media platform do not want to see their ads running side by side with hate speech and revenge porn and all sorts of stuff that is presumably getting called through the commercial content moderation process. And so if it is indeed relatively inexpensive work, 
why is that where Musk has turned his cost-cutting axe? And who is he serving, if not the advertisers who seem to be running away in Legion for very <laughs> obvious reasons? You know, if I could be inside his mind, first of all, that would be a very scary place to be. Right. But this behavior that we're witnessing in real time as we're recording today, you know, it'll be interesting to come back to this in a few months and see what you and I come up with, right? As we kind of like puzzle through the very obvious question you asked, which is what in the hell is the game plan here? Because uh, as you point out, in the scheme of things, this is a, a type of labor that is absolutely undervalued in terms of what individuals receive in terms of their salary or payment. It's usually hourly work. It is gigified work in many cases, as you describe it. It's certainly not directly employed by Twitter. They are outsourced. So already there's this preference within the industry to put these people at remove geographically in terms of responsibility that the companies may ultimately feel they have for these individuals organizationally, just in all sorts of ways, they, they keep these folks at remove. And I think the, the reasons are, are the things you, you kind of alluded to and, and stated, which are now well understood, at least by people within this industry or close to it, the repercussions of doing this work, which are things like mental health degradation and PTSD-like symptoms, the absolute boredom that can come the other 99% of the time that you're doing content moderation of the rote work that you're doing, your inability to have agency and autonomy and really being forced to work as a, as a human algorithm, just kind of meeting out if-then statements. All of those things are true, and given the benefit that is provided by this labor force to the companies in terms of managing the brand, both the brand relationships, but also the, the platform's brand, keeping it out of legal liability, doing a lot of really important mission-critical things, to my mind, I've always felt they're getting a deal. Right. I have to put on a different hat, and that's the hat of Ms. Wall Street. More accurately, Mr. Wall Street, yeah. Mr. Board Member, Mr. Billionaire, and say, well, I'm looking at the company and I'm looking at what generates revenue, where we can hopefully at some point turn a profit. And I'm looking over here at content moderation as a place that just costs us money. It is expensive in the sense that we have to have thousands of workers doing this work for us to meet our needs at any given time. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to pay that money? And wouldn't that be great if on a quarter by quarter basis, we didn't have to report out we're spending X amount of, of money without a clear return on our investment? Now, I would argue as a researcher and as an industry watcher that that's a pretty short-sighted set of judgments because we know that coming up in the paper on the front page of the New York Times with some scandal about content that's, again, I hate that word, but you know that has been circulated, that's awful or whatever, that has a real cost for companies. As you said, companies don't want to be associated with the latest anti-Semitic rant from a failing pop star who is in need of intervention, really, and not in need of a mouthpiece, for example. When you think about that, that cost-benefit analysis, it, I would actually argue, as I think you, you are saying, it seems like you're getting a good deal and you ought to just pay for that. So then we have to go somewhere else to figure out what's going on. Now, first of all, I do think that the quarter by quarter reporting 
and the Wall Street investment cycle of expectation on returns on investment is, is a big part of the problem here. But that no longer is the case in terms of Twitter, which is going to be studied for decades to come in terms of what's going on. Musk has purchased Twitter. It's no longer a publicly traded company. There isn't this need necessarily to serve the same kind of audience in terms of shareholders, although he certainly does have people he's going to owe a lot of money to. Saudi money is backing this in a major way, and investment banks are backing it, and all kinds of other people. However, again, I think your analysis stands that it seems like this is a weird place to go cutting corners, that it's a relatively cheap, unfortunately, outlay for, for what is provided. So I would say we've got to look at ideology. We've got to go to what is in the psyche of the individuals who lead companies like this. Where are they coming from? And I mean that, you know, philosophically, mm -hmm. but I also mean that literally. Like, where are they from? Well, they are from a place called Silicon Valley, which is a weird-ass place in the middle of a weird place called California, in the middle of a weirder place called the United States, which has weird politics and weird belief systems about, you know, pulling one's self up by one's bootstraps and other kinds of myths that are pervasive. And it also has a particular affinity for a certain notion of something called free speech, which doesn't look anything like the kind of free speech that I would argue you might find in the Constitution, which has to do with people's ability to dissent onto the government, which doesn't really have a lot to do with what private industry does and what rules it makes. I mean, those there have been cases argued, of course, in the Supreme Court. I'm not a lawyer, okay? I, I only pretend to be one sometimes on the internet. Um, I do know a lot of lawyers, and they are very nice people for the most part. They can't help their career choices. But anyway, there's this like weird idea that free speech means to a certain extent, behave however you want without consequence, right? That's what that means to a certain class of, you know, mostly rich men who run companies in Silicon Valley. That's a pretty privileged position to be in, to have that principle above all others. There are other principles that could be invoked. There are other values that could be instantiated inside of these companies as just as important, like protecting all people equally or making a space where people would want to spend time because it's a nice environment to be in. I mean, that's not just like a principle that you could have. That's actually like a business idea that I offer freely to entrepreneurs everywhere that you might be able to turn a dollar on that concept. But for a long time, this particular place has had this affinity for cyber libertarianism, and I would point to the work of people like Fred Turner and other historians in this area who have done an, an excellent job kind of tracking the hippie culture of the 60s, the counterculture, the anti-establishment culture, and how that morphed with the Cold War era technocrats who were building companies in Silicon Valley, and those things kind of gelled together into these principles that someone like Elon Musk is like the worst embodiment of. The worst parts of all of these takes mm -hmm. he, he has. And so his idea of free speech really is be a huge asshole with no consequence.
you really cannot get away from these ideological positions. This serves a particular class, and it really is convenient to have a philosophy of anything should go when your other option is I have to take responsibility for what's going on on the platform that I own or that I'm the CEO of. For someone like Elon Musk, who also believes that every problem in the world can be solved through technology, even though he's not particularly versed necessarily through his own training in those very technologies that he feigns expertise in, these things come together in, in a kind of a perfect storm for the rest of us. He can espouse an attachment to free speech that every person will interpret in a way beneficial to herself, right? Great, I get to have free speech. Let me go have free speech, you know, to the nth degree. He wants me to have it. Mm -hmm. There's a financial incentive there. There's a desire to escape and issue responsibility. To a certain extent, it is religiosity for the atheist set, you know, for the, for the Dawkins set. I mean, Absolutely. I'm an atheist, so I certainly am not here to throw my hat in for religion. I'm actually just saying <laughs> it smells like religion by any other name. It smells like blind faith and it smells like... It's a Randian gospel. Yes, it's it, exactly. We're, we're in that territory. Uh, of course, we know how she ended her life. It was by taking social security under somebody else's name so she could get chemo for her lifetime of smoking. So do as I say, not as I do is also the watchword here. Frankly, we can't underestimate his hubris either. His, his egotism, his narcissism, his belief in his own intellectual and technological supremacy that he somehow has found an answer that thousands of Twitter employees, past and present, well, I guess they're all past, <laughs> latter past and more recent past, have evaluated and thrown out as not feasible or not scalable or just a bad goddamn idea. You know, his big idea, we're going to have a social media council. You don't think in the past 15, 20 years, people haven't thought of that, buddy? A council that's going to, you know, hold court over possibly millions of pieces of information. On a second-by-second -second basis, right. this is a 24-by-7 concern. The floodgates are always open. So far, it seems like it's a council of one. So far, his biggest decisions seem to involve letting Nazis back on the platform and making it a no-no to make fun of him. Which I guess if you've just paid $44 billion for your new toy, you're entitled to do. But the rest of us are rescinding their participation, advertisers, but also the users that he actually needs because he needs to sell something to the advertisers. That you alluded earlier to the possible interventions from the state and not just the United States, right? But from various states where Twitter is used as a communication platform around the world. While I think for many of us, it's relatively easy to understand why advertisers might want to use Twitter and why they might be abandoning Twitter. And it's relatively easy to understand why the daily active user might be interested in Twitter and might also be questioning their long-term use of the platform. I think it's much harder to understand what the liabilities are in terms of potential government interventions, regulation, both in the U.S. and abroad. I mean, we had 
one prominent senator get into a kind of flame war with Musk recently and overtly threaten some form of government intervention. Ed Markey yeah. was the senator. You said you know a lot of lawyers. You've clearly been studying this issue, even though you are not a lawyer. What are the exposures to government intervention that are being created by layoffs, yeah. by changes of policy, by rapid rapid innovation, to put it charitably? Yeah, yeah that is a charitable view. Here's where, where I actually say legal scholars are the ones on these points to read and pay attention to. There's Kate Klonick, Daniel Citron, Jeff Kossoff, just to name a few off the top of my head. And I encourage people to look at the, the literature of... There will be a bibliography associated with this episode. So if you're, if you're interested in following up, we, we will make sure that there are links there. So with all apologies to the, uh, the learned in this area, I mean, I'll just make a couple observations. I think it's safe to say that the United States has been laggard in terms of regulation of the tech industry in general, however we define that, but let's just say the commercial social media industry to be more specific. For a long time, that industry has dictated to Congress what it's willing to do and not do. And in many ways, it has done that by conflating the policy and the regulatory with the technological. In other words, saying, sorry, Senator, we can't do that because blah, blah, wave your hands around. Or more commonly, don't worry about regulating that Senator because in just a minute, we're gonna have a technological solution and it's gonna be computational and it's gonna be at scale. So don't worry your pretty head about that because we in Silicon Valley, all of whom are, are geniuses, mm -hmm. we're gonna handle that and it's gonna be done by computers which we all know is better than human beings right. for some reason. Again, this goes back to the ideology that is also conveniently right. self-serving. And this is especially a line of rhetoric that you hear around content moderation specifically. So when there have been congressional hearings saying to these companies, why can't you remove X, Y, or Z type of material that is offensive or illegal or upsetting, or we just don't like it. The response is always just hold on because we're building tools and we're creating computers and algorithms, again, wavy handy, technological magic that will take care of this. But if you guys regulate it and you dictate to us, now you're stalling innovation. Now you guys are the problem. So let us come back to you and tell you what's possible and what we're capable of and just know that it's just a little bit down the road. It's just always like a hair out of reach, but we're going to get there. And the thing that you, you hear being invoked in the space of content moderation is that pretty soon computers are going to do all of that work. To give the listeners an idea of how long that's been the party line, at least as long as I've been studying this topic, which is coming up on 13 years. Assuredly, that's been the case before I ever was on scene. And back then, computers could not do that kind of work at that time. I talk about in the book how I went over and talked to a, a research scientist who was in computer visualization and asked him about it, and he just basically laughed me out of the room. Now, 2022, computers are capable of all kinds of incredibly complex and impressive things. But at the end of the day, when we go back to issues of cost, for example, bottom line, it's incredibly expensive to invest in that kind of infrastructure when you can say just hire a legion of cheap workers 
not my language, right? We might say workers whose value has been cheapened somewhere else in the world, out of sight, out of mind. There should be healthy skepticism around those claims, but it's been a way to forestall regulation, particularly in the United States, where we seem to have a government that is hostile, itself hostile to its own job of doing regulation, because we've had 40 plus years of neoliberal politics that have eroded the power of the state to to do things like intervene. Also, we have to keep in mind that the biggest lobbyist presence in D.C. is Amazon and Facebook. So who actually writes legislation these days? Well, it's lobbyists, and they pass it off to their Congress member of choice. Let's not forget a financial incentive for Congress, all of whom become rich while they're in Congress because they're self-dealing and investing in companies. It's just pretty disgraceful. All of that kind of like messiness aside, there is a very strong legal principle, statutory principle in the in the U.S., which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which is the thing that has given the firms that are engaged in social media both the ability to remove content that it chooses to not transmit, as well as the ability to allow for content of all types to flow over its, we would have said airwaves back in the day, but let's say pipes or whatever we want to call it, branded spaces without fear of liability for that material. And that is a unique take that, in fact, other industries have pushed back on themselves. You know, Disney very famously was in Congress fighting this, saying, hey, that what gives? That's not fair. We're in broadcast and legacy media, and we don't get to do whatever we want with without repercussion. What's up with that? So this has caused, like, you know, internal wrangling among... Media conglomerates. Yeah, huge players in media. I mean, none of them are heroes, so don't right. get me wrong here. But it's an interesting phenomenon, right, where they feel like, why is this sector favored and we're not? But the idea, of course, at the outset was to encourage people's ability to participate and to give companies the ability to offer those fields upon which people could participate with the least amount of fear. Has that aged incredibly well? Many would argue it has not. I mean, I would argue it hasn't aged great. Do I have the perfect solution for what to replace Section 230 with? No, I don't. Some of my legal scholar friends who are real proponents of this principle will go after me and say, well, what have you got on offer? And I say, well, hey, man, I didn't go to law school. Don't ask me, right? If I could solve that, I would not be a professor. I'd be in another business. The point is that that peculiarity, that like particularly American take, is something that for a long time was just exported by virtue of these companies going global. It wasn't that necessarily other countries adopted the same legislation, and in many cases they didn't. And what's happened in the last few years, I mean, this has happened at various important points in the history of of the internet becoming commercialized. I mean, uh, there was a really famous case over 20 years ago with a company that used to matter called Yahoo versus the, the country of France, you know, the nation of France, where they were having it out around Nazi memorabilia being sold on a marketplace that Yahoo controlled. The case Sarah is referring to is known as Licra v. Yahoo. That's L-I-C-R-A. If you're interested, you can find a Wikipedia page and plenty of information about the case online. These kinds of fights around sovereignty 
and around actual borders. And by actual, I mean imagine, because mm-hmm. that's what right. they are, but agreed upon, let's say, nation-state borders. That's been going on for a while. And really, the companies have prevailed in a lot of ways for most of the period of time that these companies have been on the ascent. But over time, the EU and its member states in particular, but other countries as well. So Korea has some legal statutes that it wants enforced. France and Germany, again, are out there in terms of making demands on companies if they are to operate within their borders. And then the EU putting forth its GDPR legislation, which has to do with a lot of things, but it has to do with personal autonomy over over data, how successful it is. I mean, again, that's not for me to evaluate, but I'll throw it out there as something people might want to read about. And now this new Digital Services Act that is being put through in the EU, which will ostensibly have some effect on content moderation and on operations of, of companies in general. All of this to say that basically the companies have been able to, the American-based companies, which are the ones I think people are probably most interested in and most familiar with and have had pretty much unprecedented global success, with the exception of China. Mm-hmm. So let's leave that for somebody who knows what they're talking about, which is not me. Maybe a different podcast. Right. But, you know, otherwise, they've kind of like achieved this global dominance. And, you know, over the past few years, countries around the world have kind of said, this doesn't actually work for us. We're getting dictated to by these companies that one could argue, in many ways, are a stand-in for the United States. And yeah. we've seen... Techno-imperialism. Yeah, we've seen that since the Cold War. Like, IBM's dominance in, in computation really freaked out a lot of countries. And they built homebrew computing companies, sometimes at the nation-state level, like France very famously They were building entire nationalized industries to push back against what they felt like was undue American influence via these corporate entities. So, you know, I've been in in rooms before where I have heard people make comments like, well, you know that these companies are only going to care about legislation that comes out of North America, the UK and the EU and the rest of the world be damned. That's a pretty wild thing to hear people just state as a matter of course, but I think that has really been the case up until recently and probably is the status quo or will continue to be. You know, as a person who is concerned about corporations stepping in as if nation states operating with like the same kind of sovereignty and not even necessarily on the same level, but maybe superseding the nation state. I'm I'm concerned about other places being able to have autonomy and decision-making processes into what goes on with data of their citizens and what goes on uh, in terms of who's running these companies and what their end game is. That having been said, what do we do when we have like an autocratic leader, dictator, Bolsonaro, uh, Viktor Orban, uh, Donald Trump, like what happens then when those rules need to be enforced? You know, in Turkey, any discussion of the Kurdish Workers Party or Kurdistan in general is considered terroristic. Companies will capitulate to that. So the whole scene is complex. But what I do know is that that status quo of the companies calling all the shots is probably going to come to an end. And I think to go back to Elon Musk, like the hash that he's making of this situation Mm -hmm. is only going to make other countries realize how precarious it is. This is a potential silver lining. If, if you I mean, <laughs> hesitate to call it that. But. We're really looking for one, which I am too, yeah. to be fair. Yeah. And, and I do think there are some, yeah. you know, jokes aside. Let's 
set aside what Musk's intentions are. I've certainly seen quasi-conspiratorial ideas about him, you know, wanting to sabotage this platform. Let's assume whether it's by intention or neglect, things continue in the direction they seem to be, which will lead to not just advertisers abandoning, but probably users abandoning, and maybe this platform even descending into bankruptcy and obsolescence. What are the kinds of knock-on effects of that? Obviously, we have a lot of workers or at least thousands of workers who are going to be out of jobs, many of whom are already out of jobs. But what do you see as the most important intended or unintended consequence of a situation in which Twitter sort of disappears from the social media landscape? Obviously, Facebook is already in a kind of gradual decline. And so these are two of the sort of legacy platforms of the turn of the century emergence of social media. What are the either good or bad consequences of what could be a relatively rapid transformation of that industry? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll remind your listeners that I once prognosticated that the, right. the graphical internet would never take off. Okay. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm just going to put that out there. I well, like you know so know much more bit. than you did then, right? I, I like to think I know a little bit more. Yeah. But nevertheless, we're looking into a crystal ball to a certain extent right. here. It's an interesting moment, right? We're into what the third decade, I guess, of some of these platforms really dominating. Some things are becoming clearer to the sectors of the public regulators legislators, activists, things like the fact that maybe having 2 billion people on the same platform is just not tenable or maybe a bad idea. That's one thing. You know, this has given me certainly a personally an opportunity to reflect on my own espoused politics, my own knowledge and experience, and how that seems to be completely at odds with my affective relationship that I've developed with Twitter over the years as a user and my suspension of disbelief around things like the sanctity of my data. I heard someone describe this recently in a conversation we were having as an imagined social contract mm -hmm. and how we're discovering that that's very unidirectional mm -hmm. and can change on a dime. Again, talking about silver linings, like those are actually very important lessons that we ought to pay attention to. I'm certainly doing that for myself. Many people are right now getting a crash course in their own data management and stewardship. That is something that probably needs to persist and we need to collectively support each other in becoming smarter about that and helping people who don't have the capacity to do those things on their own. We have to, you know, mutual aid ourselves in this situation around that. I mean, it's gonna be interesting to see if this model of like ad supported, quote unquote, free social media is viable going forward. Interestingly, Musk was on the record of as hating ad driven social media. He sort of destroyed that on Twitter without having a replacement for it. And it turns out it costs a lot of money to run free services for the world. What are the alternatives? We're seeing people check out Mastodon. We've heard a lot about that. Much to the you know, unhappiness of many long-term Mastodon users mm -hmm. who feel like they've been invaded by a bunch of obnoxious, ill-behaved, fighty people from Twitter. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm really, as a person who's tried to adopt Mastodon, I've tried to also adopt something of what I've come to understand is the culture and the expected behavior and being respectful as a person who's in a space that isn't my own. You know, there is an opportunity here for more locally driven and locally in the sense of community driven, self-selecting configurations of people who get together online and not to be a nostalgic Pollyanna about what it was like back in the early days, but there was a lot more of that kind of opting in to spaces that made sense to you politically, made sense to you geographically or whatever the thing was. Professional, hobbies. Exactly. Interests, vibes, you know, whatever. (laughs) And maybe people will, instead of like one-stop shopping at the mega mall of Facebook or Twitter, will think about local and slow social media. They'll think about knowing where their social media is coming from, who's running the server, who makes the moderation decisions, how those are affected and meted out in the same way that 20 years ago, people started saying, I need to understand where I'm sourcing my food from. And I don't like the idea of it coming from a corporate mega farm where animals are being treated like they have no soul or where all the family farms have been bought up and people have been put to work actually literally as content moderators in Iowa when two or three generations ago they had their own farm and those are all agribusiness outfits. You know, people said, we don't like participating in that economy. How can we develop a new economy that makes more sense to us where we're buying local, where we know the producers, where we have a say in how we spend our money. I don't know if that's naive or if that's like a beautiful vision or both. Right. Potentially some combination of the two. As somebody who also has been trying out Mastodon in recent weeks, one of the things that certainly is shocking about it is that from the moment you join, you have to make a decision which forces you to try to understand how the platform works. It, it creates a kind of, to, you know, to borrow a, a sil- another silly Silicon Valley phrase, it creates a kind of friction mm-hmm. that the for-profit social media enterprises actively try to guard against. But at the moment you log in or create an account on Mastodon, you have to choose a server, which means you have to figure out what, what is a server? Why am I choosing it? How does this thing work? And then as soon as you're in, whatever server it is you choose, you have to evaluate that decision, potentially change that decision. So much of what's going on on Mastodon, at least recently, is people just trying to understand how the platform works. That is, to some extent, by design. Create a consciousness, a presence of mind when you are on the platform about what you're doing there and what you hope to gain from it. I find that part of it very encouraging and thoughtful and pretty innovative. Of course, I have some major concerns about how that platform is going to change as more and more users join, and particularly another kind of invisibility of content moderation that is not necessarily commercial but is potentially problematic in other ways. The hosts of servers on Mastodon, and I am one, so I feel a kind of duty to speak on this, have access to a range of moderation tools 
from the blocking of specific hyperlinks or entire web domains to the muting of users from other servers or even entire servers to the monitoring of direct messages within their server to the curating of trending topics and hashtags to recommending who members of their server should follow it's a lot and a lot that could be abused particularly as some of these servers grow larger and let's face it it's only a matter of time before they get commercialized and so yeah i'm very curious to know how you're thinking about the potential beneficiaries of facebook and twitter's alleged decline i mean i'll start out by co-signing everything you just said about mastodon it's pluses, it's minuses, you know, how an individual might evaluate participation in that, what the barriers to entry are. I do concur fully with your point that one of the goals of the social media ecosystem as we know it today has been to erase any friction, as you called it, or any discomfort. Like the idea is that you get in and you start up and you are in with almost no hesitation, no learning curve, you can get in there with very low barriers to entry. Um, you download an app on your phone and you sign in. That's pretty much like mm -hmm. the, the level of yeah. barrier to entry. Less than a minute. Yep. And I mean, that's by design, yeah, right? It's something like Mastodon confronts a person with a series of decisions, with new jargon, with expectation of a technical expertise, which is still quite low, don't get me wrong, but which is exponentially higher than what is the expectation on other platforms. And that can be seen, rightly so, I think, by some as a problematic barrier that will serve as an advantage for some and will serve as a disadvantage for others. So then the question becomes, to me, how can we make sure that for those who want to participate, those barriers aren't unnecessary, but they can be used. I mean, I'm just going to get like, again, very <laughs> naively hopeful as a source of liberation. I mean, what we are talking about here is being alienated from the means of production, okay, to quote some thinker or other <laughs> from some other time in the past. When we have friction-free experiences, we, we actually don't understand for example, that we are producing value for the platform that is being extracted from our own labor, our affective labor, or other kinds of labor that we put in. When you're on Mastodon, you become a bit more aware that there is a cost for participation in terms of having to learn certain things, having to become aware of certain things. Things are tangible in a way that they weren't on other platforms where those systems and infrastructural elements are, are deliberately obfuscated. I am at this time in the camp of thinking that that is a good change, that's a good reversal to another kind of pathway that we could have gone down. You know, there are plenty of examples of how we have sold out so many parts of society for personal convenience. So I'm hopeful about, hey, maybe this can be a means where people feel they have more control and there is a learning curve, but that learning curve will ultimately provide them with greater agency and self-sufficiency and autonomy and understanding about what they are engaging in. But you brought up another point, which is those things may be true, but we're going to see an influx of 
millions of people. I mean, I think that's already happened according to statistics I've seen. Who's to say that we're not going to have the Stormfront Mastodon server starting up? If everybody enters into a social compact on the Stormfront server that says Nazis are great and anti-Semitism rules, what's the point of quote-unquote moderation? Maybe you get kicked off the platform because you say, hey, I'm not so sure about all this Jew hating. And that's why you get moderated off the platform. You know, there is a danger of creating silos where that sunshine won't be as effective to point out where certain things might fester. You know, we know, for example, that the Charlottesville riot of anti-Semitic right-wing so-called alt-right that resulted in death and harm to many people was planned on a Discord server, sort of out of sight, out of mind. We can't talk about social media without talking about what in the hell is going on in the bigger picture. Italy has just put a literal fascist, literal fascist, into the leadership of that entire country, okay? When I was a teenager, Le Pen was an old man, and I thought pretty soon we'd never have to hear that name. Now we've got two more generations of them to contend with. We've got Bolsonaro, who barely lost in Brazil. We've got Trump and DeSantis. We've got anti-Semitic vitriol everywhere you turn. We've got antagonism of trans people. Things are not okay. We've got billionaires. Why are there billionaires? And there are people in LA who sleep in the goddamn street. Something's wrong. That, unfortunately, isn't going to be solved by the Fediverse. (laughs) And it's not going to be solved by any other techno wizardry. But there are connections that we can make. We have a better chance of improving conditions across the board when the people have control and not corporations. That was Sarah T. Roberts. For more about this episode, please visit MarkTwainStudies.com backslash the end of Twitter. I'll be back next week in conversation with Ian Bogos about his recent Atlantic editorial, The Age of Social Media is Ending. Until then, here's Spurgeon. I'm not evil. Thanks for listening.
Thank you very much.